Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, this is your word that we've heard read and we're about to hear preached. And so please be merciful by your spirit to give us a clear picture of the Lord Jesus in all his glory. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, I wonder if you know the story of the young man from youth group who is uh, planning a compromising night with his girlfriend. Uh, He heads down to the local chemist and explains that he needs the appropriate protection because, as he tells the chemist, after dinner he's planning on having a very great time. Surprisingly, at the family dinner that night, he offers to say grace. And he prays and prays for so long to the point that his girlfriend leans across and says to him, I didn't realise you were so religious. To which he replies, I didn't realise your dad was a pharmacist. (laughs) Now, if you didn't get the story, I can explain it to you later. Uh, But sadly, this is actually uh, a familiar story. I use it because it highlights a reality that we often know too well whatever it is you call it, it's religious hypocrisy, it's fake religion, it's at its best half-heartedness. A confessing Christian, a churchgoer who has gaps, even gaping holes in their loyalty and obedience to Jesus. And though this is a familiar story and scene, it makes it no less sad or confronting because the true God who is revealed to us in Jesus both deserves and demands total faithfulness. God has called us to have no other gods, to have no idols, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And far from unfair or oppressive, this all-encompassing demand of loyalty is not a burden, but an act of love from God who saves and blesses. It's to know and to be set free, to have life to the full and incomparable joy. And so why, we are left to ask, why is this such a familiar story? And for many of us, such a familiar experience. God deserves and demands total faithfulness, which is good, even great for us, but half-heartedness prevails. Why is this the case? And what are we to do with it? Well, 2 Kings 3 that we've just heard read by Lynn not only shows us what half-heartedness looks like, but exposes the horror of its reality while also giving us a way forward in a way that honours God but is also very good for us. So keep your Bibles open, starting at verse 1. We meet the new king, Joram, or if you have an ESV, Jehoram. He is the second son of Ahab, uh, the brother of Ahaziah, you may remember in chapter 1, suddenly died without having kids after falling out of his window and falling under God's judgment. And sadly, the apples continue to fall not far from the tree, verse 2. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Joram, we're told, he's not as bad as mum and dad, as Ahab and Jezebel. But 
from what we know in the story, that is not saying much. He's not as bad as he could have been for sure, but he's certainly not as righteous as he should be. And you can almost hear the author sigh in verse 3. Yes, he removed the sacred stone of Baal, but nevertheless, he clung to sin and idolatry. Just because he gives up one form of depraved idolatry, it does not make him an actual improvement. We see this clearly in verse 2 as God gives his own verdict. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's like Jerome saying to God, look, I know you're big on loyalty, so I'll give you 20%. I'll get rid of Dad's Baal stone that he made, and that'll be enough. He's half-hearted at best. And although I think we probably wouldn't like to admit it, I actually think often we view our loyalty, our faithfulness to Jesus on a bit of a sliding scale. We find ways to allow, excuse, or even promote our half-heartedness. I'm not as bad as I used to be. I'm not as bad as I could be, and I'm certainly much, much better than he or she is. We let ourselves be impressed by our mediocre change. We are content with only going so far because we already know more, do more, and care more than so many others. Ask yourself, does your inner Pharisee run to your defence when a passage, a pastor or a friend calls you out and confronts some sin or inconsistency in your life? Do you, would you thank the person who called you out? Or are you quick to decide that the faults in their life mean we don't actually have to do anything at all? You tell me. Do you have an inner legalism that comes to your aid, even allowing you to make your inconsistency sound super Christian? It's not how good I am, it's how good Jesus is. I'm saved by grace, not by works. All beautiful truths in and of themselves for sure, but then are easily used to allow us to drift into half-heartedness. So we must hear God's declaration of Joram. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we need to grasp this reality so we won't be content to give God anything less than all he deserves and demands and what will be very good for us. Because the half-heartedness that Joram shows us in verses 4 to 14 I think is sadly familiar. Uh, In verse 4 we meet Mesha. He's the king of Moab and he's been paying tribute to Israel for some time and he's been doing it in the sum of 100,000 lambs and the wool of a 100,000 rams, which is a massive amount and as expensive as it sounds. And so somewhat understandably, in verse 5, he's not that keen to keep doing it. And with the death of Ahab, it proves to be the catalyst for rebellion. Uh, At this, King Joram, the new king of Israel, he's not pleased, and so he decides to quickly rally his troops in verse 6. He sends word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, who is just below them to the south, asking him to join. And uh, Jehoshaphat is very compliant. Verse 7, I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Now, hopefully that sounds familiar to you because this is exactly what the king of Judah said to Ahab when he asked him to come and fight against Ramoth-Gilead in 1 Kings 22. But with one key difference. 
When he joined Ahab, Jehoshaphat first demanded that they seek the word from a prophet beforehand. But sadly, when he now joins Joram, he skips this step and goes straight to tactics. And as readers of 1 and 2 Kings, we surely know that this is a massive oversight, a failure of duty which will only end in disaster. And so he ignores God completely. And to make matters worse, Joram, we find, is a bit of a military moron. Uh, he, you know, Jehoshaphat asked for the plan in verse 8. And uh, Joram says, I've got a great idea. Let's go through the desert. And so they collect the king of Edom in verse 9, who is under Judah's rule. So it's a bit of a package deal by getting Jehoshaphat. And the three kings march out into the desert. Verse 9. Oh, sorry. Verse 9. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no water for themselves or the animals with them. It's almost as if we're to picture Joram leading these armies, walking around in circles, and then it hits him. What have I forgotten to pack? The water. And then his response in verse 10 is almost comical. What? exclaimed the king. Has the Lord called us three kings only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? Like many before him, and even more since, Joram goes from ignoring God to then blame him when faced with disaster. And this is a common human attitude. Many of you will know Stephen Fry. He's an English actor, comedian, and quite well known for his outspoken atheism. When asked in an interview on the meaning of life, he was asked that if it turned out he was wrong, And he stood before God, what would he say? And without hesitation, he said, I would say to God, how dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world so full of injustice and pain? But this attitude, this behaviour, is not simply something that happens out there. For whether it's youth group, growth group or church, there are plenty of Jorams. People who are okay with God, happy to go along with God, giving him minimal engagement and care, only to then blame him when things go bad, whether personally or globally. This happens especially in the church where people come to know enough about God only to blame him for everything that's wrong. Great Old Testament Bible commentator Ralph Davis says, always be aware of those who cite the sovereignty of God in order to excuse or accuse but not worship and adore. And so if we see any of this tendency or attitude in ourselves we must firstly see how offensive it really is, but also how dangerous. As Joram accuses God, uh, it seems that Jehoshaphat has wonderfully had his memory returned. And he finally suggests in verse 11, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And it just so happens that Elisha is travelling with him. You'll remember we met Elisha last week as he took over from Elijah. And thankfully, some random officer just brings this to the king's attention. So the three kings, they come to Elisha, and notice that he kind of skips the pleasantries. Why do you want to involve me? 
Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. Elisha is essentially saying, what interest do you now have in God's word? It was irrelevant to you before. You were so happy in your idolatry. Elisha is really holding no punches in calling him out, addressing the shameful hypocrisy of turning to God only when it needs you or suits you. But Joram, he holds his course and he essentially says, well, if it's God's fault that we're here, he better have something to say for himself. And what Elisha responds to that is quite shocking. As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve... If I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. He's essentially saying that he's only going to bring God's word because Jehoshaphat is standing there. And so by thinking that he can treat God however he wants, Joram can and should expect nothing from God. And it may surprise us, but we actually see a very similar warning given to followers of Jesus in James 1. James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, the doubt that James is talking about here, it's not intellectual doubt. It's not certainty that God will do the thing that you're asking. It's about loyalty, what he calls in verse 8, being double-minded or literally two-souled, what we would call being two-faced. It's the half-hearted, half-committed Christian who wants to keep one foot in the Jesus camp and one foot in their own or in the world or anywhere else. And James warns that if you want to seek God out for help but not submit to him in all of your life, you can expect nothing from him. And so how do we know if this has become us? Well, ask, do you see any patterns of Joram in yourself? Do you seek God only at your convenience and for your agenda? Do you come to God only out of interest in escaping some trouble while refusing to commit to God in discipleship, to actually follow him? Do you want God's word only for certain moments but won't submit to it in the long term and the all of life? Has your view and your treatment of God become merely an airbag or a punching bag? Are there patterns of Joram in you where you want to seek to control your relationship with God rather than submit to him? Many of you will know Ravi Zacharias. He spent decades traveling the world, defending the Christian faith, speaking to hundreds of thousands of people about Jesus one of the most well-known and influential Christian speakers ever. Yet all the while since his death, it's come out that he's had multiple affairs during that time and had sexual misconduct with several women. 
But what is so shocking about this story is that in the report we see that he justified it to the women that it's what he needed or deserved for all of his hard work. Our ability to persist in and justify half-heartedness is profound and confronting. So whether it's how you use your time or your money, what you say or what you watch, where you let your mind drift off to, or how you treat others, is there a pattern of controlling God's demand on your life, content to limit your faithfulness to him for your own convenience? We see that the pat- if you see that the pattern of Joram has existed or does exist in your life, we need to see God's declaration that it is evil. We need to see that God is displeased and we can expect nothing from him while we live in that space. But as we take our half-heartedness seriously, we see the response of God to the half-hearted King Joram is not just an overwhelming comfort to us, to our souls that are in desperate need of forgiveness, but actually shows us the way to a deeper faithfulness. Uh, Elisha is standing before the three kings and he calls for a harp. And as the harp plays the music, the word of God comes to him with a double promise to the king that I imagine he could barely believe. This is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water and you and your cattle and the other animals will drink. God is going to quench their thirst. Pools of water are going to appear. There's no forecast for rain. They're not going to see it coming, but it will come. Their desperate disaster is going to be relieved by the promise and provision of God. But notice that God isn't done. Though it's not asked for or even on the radar for King Jehoram, God promises more than their immediate dilemma. Verse 18. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also deliver Moab into your hands. You will overthrow every fortified city, every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs and ruin every good field with stones. So notice after being ignored and now accused by Joram, God promises him water and victory. And though this is big in Joram's eyes, it is an easy thing for the Lord to do. He mercifully confronts the half-heartedness of this wicked king by displaying power and extravagant grace to the undeserving. But while the promise is quite amazing, the fulfillment is even better. The water that God provides is truly wonderful. It doesn't just quench their thirst, but gives them the victory. The water comes, verse 20, it's just a matter of fact for the author. God speaks, the water comes. But as this water comes and like fills the land, the Moabites, who have heard that the three kings have come out to fight them, they see the sun glistening off the water and they think it's blood in verse 22. And it's kind of comical where to picture them, they're high-fiving each other and celebrating and they say, that's blood. The kings must have fought and slaughtered each other now to plunder Moab. 
And so we see the absolute power and sovereignty of God as they sprint up to enjoy the spoils of war, but all they do is run into swords and are destroyed. And the victory, as promised, is completely total. Verse 25, towns, trees, fields, springs, they're all destroyed. But I hope you heard it as Lynn read it. The tone really shifts gear in verse 26. Uh, Mesha, the king of Moab, he sees that loss is imminent. He takes 700 of his best in a last-ditch effort to get to the king of Edom, but it fails. And what happens next is just shocking. Verse 27. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. In 1868, an Anglican missionary found this. Uh, It's called the Meshastili or the Moabite stone, and it's dated to about 840 BC. And on it is an inscription by King Mesha, the Moabite king, speaking of his frustration at being subject to Israel since the time of Omri, that's the king of Israel we meet in 1 Kings 16, and you can see this, it's on display in a French museum. And on it is also Mesha's account of this battle. And Mesha ascribes his long history of defeat to Israel to the anger of the Moabite god Chemosh. And so here in this battle, in the face of imminent defeat again, Mesha seeks to appease his fake god Chemosh as he kills his own son as a sacrifice. But what is so fascinating that in the face of this desperate, tragic and really just sad act, the final words of the chapter are quite confusing. Great fury or great wrath comes upon Israel and they retreat before full and final victory is had. And the key question has to be, whose wrath is it? And I think it's tricky to be certain and uh, the books that I read were confused and divided. Because on the one hand, it could be God's own wrath against Israel, against his own people. And that is the most common way these words are used together in the Old Testament. And if that's the case, then it's kind of a bit of a stinger in the tail, isn't it? That Israel do not get to recapture Moab, and King Joram is really left with the choice of whether he's now going to cry out to God and change his ways and flee his hard-heartedness. But it could also be that the wrath that comes upon Israel, the fury that comes upon them, is their own. The idea is that they are so indignant, so horrified, so disgusted at what they see in the idolatry of Moab as they see it in all its gory details. So horrified they are that they withdraw at just the sheer awfulness of it all. They pick up their spears and go home. But either way, throughout this chapter and throughout Kings, we have seen that Israel are prone to self-reliance and idolatry. And constantly we see the true God intervene in mercy to provide for them. And in this chapter, to provide for Joram, 
without actually him asking for it and certainly not deserving it. And then the chapter finishes here with him and Israel walking away with a clear picture in their minds of what godless desperation will do to you and what it looks like. And so as they leave unsatisfied, God is saying to them, he's trying to get them to process what life without him is really like. While the king of Moab, while Mesha kills his own son in desperation to get God to do something, to come and defend them, Israel ignores and accuses the true God only to have him show up and bless them abundantly. Why would they go anywhere else? Why would you neglect this God if, and think you're better off without him? Why would you think he deserves anything less than all of your loyalty, love and worship? And we see this point is so clearly made because why has God done this? Look back at verse 18. As God promised Israel water that would quench their thirst, God says to them, this is no small thing for him to do. Yet their view of God is so impoverished, so small, that they think it is a big deal. And so God intervenes to show them again who he really is. And so it's actually our view of God that will either drive or destroy our half-heartedness. Theology fuels discipleship. Knowledge of God motivates living for God. And so if we want to flee half-heartedness and a faithfulness that falls so far short of what Christ demands and deserves then we must run to God and magnify him in our hearts and minds to see him as he actually is. The root power of sin is severed by the power of a superior pleasure. The bondage to sin is broken by a stronger attraction, a more compelling pleasure. And so we will flee half-heartedness when we have what Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. It's why we see time and time again in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul praying that Christians who know Christ would know and grasp him deeper and deeper. Just listen to what he prays in Ephesians. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you will know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Or Ephesians 3. And I pray that being rooted and established in love, you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We never need more than Christ but to be 
to know and to be compelled by more of Christ. And so do you want that? Do you long to go deeper into your understanding of who Jesus is? His character, his love and power, even his gentleness. To go deeper into what he's done through his life and death and resurrection. Because you only need to be around church or even around Christians for about five minutes to realise how easily we forget, how quickly we underestimate God. To become bored or underwhelmed or just fall into habits of saying, yes, God loves me. Christ died for me. In fact, I think this is probably what I hear the most in youth group when they come to church. I know they say, I get it, Jesus loves me. As if it's this small and insignificant thing that changes nothing. But in reality, it's the most beautiful, compelling and life-changing truth that could ever be told or heard or understood. It's why what we're doing now, what we do every week in listening to God's word, it really matters. It's why what we do at Growth Group, or just when you open the Bible for yourself, it really matters as we behold our God who deals in extravagant grace and really can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. We see this so beautifully in 2 Kings 3, right? Hopefully one of the tensions you're feeling right now, one of the tensions of this passage is, why would God do this for dodgy old Joram, who doesn't ask for it, who doesn't care, and certainly doesn't deserve it? Why would God do that? But that's really the whole point, isn't it? Elisha made it clear from the start that the only reason he was speaking to him at all, the only reason he would get this promise is because of Jehoshaphat. And so the undeserving Joram is abundantly blessed through and because of someone else. And that's actually exactly the same for you and I. Isn't that what we see in the gospel Isn't that what we just sang about as we started the service? Isn't that what we're about to remember as we come to the Lord's Supper? That nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin to you I cry, wash me, Saviour, or I die. Or as Paul says in Philippians 3, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Do you want to go deeper into knowing, enjoying, and living for Jesus? Are you longing and praying for a big and glorious view of Jesus because you want to see and enjoy him as he really is. 
John Piper says, the whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this. Feel, think, act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. Be a telescope for the world of the infinite starry wealth of the glory of God. But as we grasp the greatness of Jesus more and more, we will see that limiting Jesus' claim on our life or refusing to let him have all of our life is not, it's not protecting or preserving our joy and fulfilment, though we convince ourselves it is. It's actually to lose it. Listen to what James says in James 1. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. The true and living God we have come to know in Jesus doesn't simply demand our total love and loyalty but is so worthy of it as he deals with us in extravagant grace. And so will we, will you resist giving him anything less and flee half-heartedness by gazing and by going deeper into the glory of Christ. Let's pray that that would be us. Father, we thank you for your extravagant grace, that in and through Jesus we who were dead without hope and without God have been given life and love. Father, we confess that we have often sought to resist your rule, refusing to give you all that you demand and deserve. So please work in us now to throw off sin that so easily entangles by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Grant that by your spirit we grow in knowledge of your son, grasping his greatness, fleeing half-heartedness to give him all he deserves and demands. And we ask this for our good and for his glory. Amen.